0: what's better than this guys being dudes here on the draft dudes podcast presented by locked on it's Joe Marino and Kyle Krabs, and we are your hosts here on this hey. uh, is it? Wednesday edition of it's the Wednesday. show. Um, hi, Kyle. Welcome from St. Petersburg.
1: Hey, Joe. I'm sitting here in the Holiday in West St. Pete.
0: Oh, God. You're going to be even more than, of an expert than ever then, huh, Kyle?
1: I Yeah, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. No, I'm, yeah. two, I'm two miles from Tropicana Field, so it's really nice to just buzz down the road it's right here. you roll in for practices. Uh, do you remember last year when we were doing Twitch for the draft network and we teased me telling the Reggie McKenzie story? Yes. I'm not going to tell the Reggie McKenzie story, but I thought you would appreciate hearing live on, on the air without me having told you this beforehand. Literally the first NFL personal man I've seen each of the last two days at practice is Reggie McKenzie.
0: Is he with the Dolphins now?
1: He is. He's a, a senior <laughs> executive for the Dolphins.
0: Good. Good. I hope that um, you guys have um, exchanged pleasantries and uh, he's forgotten about your past.
1: Me, me and me and Reggie had a crazy run in one time. We'll tell it sometime, but not now. Mm, um, not but now. yeah, we're down here for Shrine Week. Uh, we had Monday and Tuesday practices. Uh, some pretty interesting players down here, Joe, that I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into when we have the time. Uh, obviously, we had the national championship game on Monday night. What a bear of a game that was from a time perspective, <sighs> brother.
0: <laughs> For our us what was East that, a Coasters, five hour man. game. Five hour game. It was like ten forty starting the second half. I mean, what if LSU wasn't in control of the game and didn't try to run out the fourth quarter? I mean, right. If this game was close, we're we're getting to one a.m. Eastern time,
1: and we went out to eat me, Trevor and Ben went out to eat, to watch the game. And like, we had ordered our food, had a round of drinks, had the food brought out to us. And I looked up and there's like six minutes left in the first quarter. Yeah. I'm like, what's happening with the game? It's not going anywhere. And it was, you know, LSU got backed up early in the, in, in the game. So they had a couple quick three and outs and punts and, uh, just seemed like a lot of early stoppages and, and, and these teams threw the ball around a little bit and Joe Burrow really came on the second half so I guess do we want to start there and then kind of work our way chronologically through the week <laughs> since we got yeah, we got to talk yeah. about the Panthers are turning the NFL upside down right now Yep. with some of these uh, ambitious hires so we'll start with the Natty takeaways from the Natty
0: yeah I think the story of the Natty is Joe Burrow <laughs> he It's just he went on up against a Clemson defense with Brent Venables as the defensive mastermind of the college football world, who had extra time to prepare for the game, and uh, hung four hundred four or six hundred and twenty-eight yards and forty-two points on the Clemson Tigers defense that averaged only eleven and a half points per game scored against it all season long. I mean, uh, it, it, it was a, a it was a continuation of the greatest season of offensive football that college football has ever seen and against a resume of opponents that uh, nobody is questioning. There's no cupcake comments when it comes to this LSU Tigers offense and, and the schedule that it faced. And they steamrolled Georgia in the SEC championship game. They steamrolled Oklahoma. They steamrolled Clemson. And uh, this this is the greatest offense ever in college football history.
1: It's pretty pretty special to have seen that materialize the way that it has, right?
0: Absolutely. I
1: was just going to say, do you realize the raw numbers Joe Burrow put up over the last three games, the SEC championship and the college football playoff games?
0: I do, but share them, please, if you have them.
1: Okay, so Joe Burrow was accountable for 1,426 yards from scrimmage in those three games alone. Uh, which is an average of 475 yards from scrimmage. He threw zero interceptions, and he accounted for 18 total touchdowns in three games. Averaged 475 and six touchdowns. It's just mind-boggling, and this is against, Joe, as you said, the best competition that college football has to offer. And then you add the Alabama game and the Auburn game and the Florida game, which Mm -hmm. at the time was a top 10 matchup. Joe, the Clemson game was the, the only game this year. Joe Burrow did not complete at least 70% of his passes.
0: Can I tell you like something that I think I love so much about this game is Clemson or LSU did not start strong offensively. They had three and out on their first two possessions Then they went uh, five plays and punted their their first 11 plays of the game. They accumulated 17 yards and had three punts in their first three possessions. They ran out the clock in the fourth quarter. This 42 point explosion and 628 yards basically came in the second and third quarter against Brett Venables, the adjustments, right? It's, It's Joe Brady and Joe Burrow. Being able to overcome the very diverse pressure packages that, that Venables sent early, get you know, hit him with that 3-3 stack, and they adjusted. And Brett Venables couldn't do a damn thing about it after shutting down every offense he played all year.
1: Yeah, I think it was Ben at the table on Monday made an interesting comment. He said, Your typical average football game, you start the game and the offenses have scripted plays. And you see a lot of teams that have success when their offense is on the script. Yep. This was the complete opposite. This was (laughs) the defense had the scripts. And once the defenses got off the scripts on how to attack the offenses, the points came in bunches. So Brent Venables used all of his heaters in the first three possessions (laughs) of the game. And it worked. And then it came time to throw a different pitch. And LSU just cranked everything they put on the field from there on out.
0: Uh, we have a lot we want to get into, so I think we should keep the line moving and talk about now this Joe Brady passing game. Yes. Is, it's with the Carolina Panthers, man. And, and so the – Uh, coaching staff that is being assembled in Carolina is unprecedented Matt rule the head coach Phil Snow the defensive coordinator Joe Brady the offensive coordinator those three men have five years of NFL coaching experience combined none of them ever as play callers in an NFL where we are seeing coaches recycled left and right coaches coordinators yeah there there you go there's the example (laughs) of it I mean you you, you told yeah for sure it's been retired for three years let's go the Carolina Panthers are not doing that. They are being aggressive and giving guys opportunities in big you know obviously at the highest level to go and be themselves and 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 take the stuff that they've been successful with at the college level and do it in the NFL. I am fascinated by the idea of this. I think it says a lot of things about what's going to happen in Carolina and what might happen with Cam Newton, but for just from just kind of appreciating the fact that Dave Tepper an unbelievably aggressive man has entrusted his $2.2 billion investment into the hands of a bunch of guys with very little NFL experience.
1: Yeah, this is kind of most NFL owners would tend to side with the devil you do versus the devil you don't, right? It's it's a very tightly woven group, and the owners are going to gravitate towards offensive coordinators and head coaches that have been established and that's why you you've seen a lot of retreads over the course of recent years and kind of some predictable hires. Once you see who the list of interviews are, you're like, well, he's probably going to get the job. And most of the time (laughs) it works out that way. Yeah. But Dave Tepper is absolutely marching to the beat of his own drum here, which, which fits everything we've ever heard about Dave Tepper, the individual, the man and the businessman, right? That's who he is is he is fearless, he's bold, he's ambitious. And when you have a man like that, that has the resources that Dave Tepper has, you can bet your ass he's going to go hard after whatever he thinks is going to work, and he's not going to be afraid. It's like any great business person. It's th- This is an investment into the Carolina Panthers, and no risk it, no biscuit and I think there's great potential payoff for dipping into the college pool the way that Dave Tepper has uh, because you're seeing the NFL game change so much to become a much more similar beast to what the college football offenses are. Now, based on the athleticism on the field, that carryover won't always be there, and that's an interesting conversation for Joe Brady that I'd like to maybe get your thoughts on.
0: Well, first of all, Dave Tepper is not here for nepotism. <laughs> that is not a word in his vocabulary. And just a, one side nugget here is Dave Tepper is the richest owner in the NFL. He has all the money. Yeah, he gave Matt Rule seven years, $60 million That could be um, you know, max out at $70 million. If this isn't going to work in three years, if this doesn't work, he is going to wash his hands clean of it and move on. That is a drop in the bucket for him. The amount of money he's invested in Matt Rule, he can find that in his couch cushions. All right, it's a lot of money, yes, but it's not going to prevent Dave Tepper. He's not going to cling to a mistake. If we look at this in three years and say, "Wow, <laughs> really appreciate the aggressiveness," but this is ain't going to work. Dave Tepper's not just going to stay married to it because he still owes the man thirty million dollars. All right, so what was your question about Brady? I I wanted to say that and forgot. Joe what
1: Trans, translating Joe Brady's passing offense yeah. to okay. The NFL level, which I think that it's it's probably a much cleaner projection than some of what the questions are with Lincoln Riley's offense. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's not the air raid. Right. So I think that's the big thing. It's not like Mike Leach is going to the NFL. This is Joe Brady. It's a it's it's almost in a lot of ways. Um, some uh, it's a lot of pieces of the best passing offenses in football right now and, and spread concepts and route concepts and reading leverage and adjustments on the fly. And it puts a lot of stress on the quarterback to really be able to process pre-snap and, um, and deliver the football accurately to all levels of the field. I mean, I think I think the quarterback position is very important for this offense, a guy that's accurate and has a quick trigger. The other thing that's very important for this offense to work, for, especially for Carolina, is they've got to get the offensive line right. If Brady's going to put four and five wide receivers out there and not have help for his front five, they're going to be in trouble, right? I think the Carolina Panthers have two pieces on their offensive line, Taylor Moton and Trey Turner, that are like legitimate starters. And then that's about it. They, they, I mean, they could literally, they need a a lot of work. Listen, I mean, the dude was hurt all year and he had bad (laughs) college tape. What do you want me to say? You know, like (laughs) I, I don't think if you're going in with the belief that Greg Little's just going to become the left tackle that you've always dreamed of, I think that's irresponsible. And that's been a problem. The, the Panthers had Jordan Gross for 10 years as their left tackle. He retired in 2013. Kyle, they've had a different primary starter every single year since he's retired. They had four different left, left tackles this year. They've played 10 different left tackles over the last 95 games. It's not great. No, it's not great. It's the blind side. I mean, Cam Newton, obviously, he's had his own injuries, but my God, protect his blind side. And I know he hangs on to the ball. He causes some of his own pressure, all of that stuff, but you're just not able to get the left tackle spot right. And the pieces around it are pretty poor as well. And so if this Brady offense is going to work, they're going to have to find the right quarterback to be the trigger man, and they've got to get the front five right, or else it's going to be it's going to be hell for that quarterback.
1: So here's here's my theory with offensive line play, right? you don't need to have five all pro players. Is that a reasonable statement?
0: You can't. So, yeah, I agree with you. And also you can't.
1: You don't need five good players. Is that a reasonable statement? I'm building to something here. Just roll with me. Say yes. 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 You cannot have two bad players playing next to each other on the offensive line.
0: (laughs) Definitely not. Right. So, like, it's okay to
1: have a right guard who's kind of a schlep, right? <laughs> or just a guy. You can have a right tackle who you can slide your protections to. You can slide, you know, your backs and tight ends that way and help him out pass protect. I mean, that that's what the Tennessee Titans did the the year that um, Jack Conklin won or was named All Pro as a rookie. All they did was slide protections to help Jack Conklin. Was he was he an All Pro offensive tackle that year? No, probably not. But he was named it because he was a top top pick at offensive tackle, and he didn't give up a sack because they gave him all the help in the world. That's all it takes, man. But you can't have a bad you can't have a a bad center and a bad guard playing next to each other, and you can't have a bad guard and a bad tackle playing next to each other because now it's crippling. You can work around one negligible piece, and if you're talking polar opposite like a left guard and a right tackle you can have an okay offensive line but you can't have two bad pieces playing next to each other
0: well the carolina panthers had three this year right. <laughs> left tackle left guard and center matt paradis just had a disaster season i don't i mean his injuries may have caught up to him left guard they probably wished greg van roten could have been healthy all year but darrell williams who's not a natural fit at guard played over 400 snaps at left guard. And then, like I already said, four different guys played left tackle this year. Yeah, it's a mess. Good Lord. I guess... All right, um, so let's... let's, Yeah.
1: I was just going to say one more thing before we move on to some Shrine prospects that that are standing out to me this week. Cam Newton. Yeah. Joe Brady's offense.
0: No, not a fit.
1: I, I... I think the writing was, is on the wall here that, you know, regime change in coaching staff. Marty Herney's probably, you know, they're looking to, are they still looking to elevate somebody above Marty Herney?
0: So that's the challenge, right? They, they, Andrew Barry, they wanted to interview him, but oh, that, that's right. Yeah. It, it got declined because it's not a true general manager position. So, I think they want to build a succession plan to get Marty Herney out, uh, but he's still going to be a powerful man in the organization so much so that they weren't willing to change his title to really be able to interview Andrew Barry because Philadelphia Eagles were able to block that request because it wasn't for a true general manager yeah. job. So it's weird right now.
1: But you've seen coaching changes. You're seeing player changes with Luke Keekley's Luke stunning retirement yesterday. And, Joe, I, I know I speak for you when I say tip of the cap to Luke for an awesome eight year career in the NFL and uh, having the conviction to walk away from the game and knowing when it was time, uh, when it was best for him. And, you know, it, it's been a real joy to watch Luke play and be one of the best linebackers in football of my generation in my lifetime. Uh, so, cheers to Luke Keekley for a great career. But it just feels like there's so much change happening right now that it almost feels inevitable that Cam being behind center would be stunning to me in 2020 at this point with all the other change you're seeing in Carolina.
0: Yeah, it started last year with Thomas Davis, Ryan Khalil, uh, Julius Peppers out the door, Ron Rivera's out the door, Luke Kuechly retired. And if I could just say, I mean, congratulations to him, eight years in the NFL, seven Pro Bowls, defensive rookie of the year, Uh, Defensive Player of the Year. He's created generational wealth for his family. Um, Not every player gets to to call it quits after eight seasons, but for him, kudos for uh, playing at a level that uh, gave you this opportunity to get out uh, when you felt like it was right and under your own terms. So I'm going to miss watching him play football, but happy for him. Yeah, it just feels like it's a clean – go ahead.
1: Is he a first-bound Hall of Famer?
0: It's tough. It's tough after eight seasons to say that. Um, I I think. I think he played. I think he was the best player at his position for eight years. So, (laughs) I I mean, I think that says a lot. I mean, Carolina has had some really outstanding defenses. He's got the accolades, in my opinion. I mean, he he probably gets in. I just don't know that with it. You know, retiring at twenty eight and only playing eight seasons, that it screams first ballot Hall of Famer. But uh, you know, definitely somebody that the Panthers will have in their ring of honor and, and be, you know, memorialized in Carolina very soon. And, and he'll, he'll get his chance to go to Canton, but uh, I don't know if it's first ballot.
1: I think if you're going to put Brian Urlacher in as a first ballot hall of famer, uh, Keekly's got more all pro selections than Brian Urlacher did. (laughs) He had, one less Pro Bowl than Brian Erlacher did, and Erlacher played like four thirteen seasons. Um, Keekley's got like four less interceptions. I'm just I'm just kind of looking at the numbers, and Keekley's production, with the exception of sacks, is better than Urlacher's, and he had more All Pro teams than Urlacher did. So if Urlacher's a first ballot Hall of Famer, I think you can make a strong case for yeah. Keekley, even though he only played eight seasons.
0: I dig it. So the point here being that the, the the time to push the reset button at quarterback feels like it's uh, never going right to be cleaner, now. especially because Cam, yeah. you know, I obviously I'm sure they'd love to trade him and get something for him. But, I mean, they could, they could cut him and, and it would only cost them $2 million in dead cap space and I think save him like uh, $19 million. So it's no, it just feels they, like they all the writing's him. on the wall. They you do, gotta, but I'm just – You've got
1: to trade him
0: correct do we know what his value is going to be what what are they going to be able to get for cam newton
1: wow Come, it's almost coming off as the- though somebody at the draft network wrote this article several months ago
0: did i write it or did you i wrote, wrote
1: this it? article i wrote this article
0: what do you think cam newton who hasn't been injured uh, been able to stay healthy for the last five years what is his trade value at age 30 and being a dual threat quarterback
1: I'm pulling up my article right now, but I believe I had listed a two and a conditional three.
0: Do you, does, do you get the salary cap benefits of that as well? Does that cleanly come off if you trade him?
1: Yeah, he has no bonus. Mm. Yeah, you, you would have $2 million in debt cap.
0: Okay. So you still get the same exact benefits. Plus you get a, a pick.
1: Correct. You get okay, you clear up equal amount of roster space. You get a two this year and a conditional three next year that if he resigns could es- escalate to a two. And if he doesn't, and like if he gets hurt and plays less than 10 games or whatever, it could be a four, you know, like you can have a scaling four, yeah. three, two in 2020, uh, 2021.
0: Is it a full situation where Cam Newton's earned the right to pick his next team?
1: I think that would be good business for Carolina, but you know, there's only going to be so many teams that are in the quarterback market that are going to be interested in adding 31-year-old Cam Newton, who's in the last year of his contract. It's going to have to be a team that thinks that they can compete in 2020 if they fix the quarterback position.
0: With Cam Newton.
1: With Cam Newton. And then if it goes well, then you can extend him, and then your escalator kicks in for the conditional 20- 21 and if you look back and cam's healthy and he plays 16 games your team makes the playoffs and you have to give up two twos for cam newton You'd be happy about it you've done really well for yourself yeah, yeah. but if he gets yeah. hurt you give up a two and a four and it's like well we, t- we took a shot we rolled the dice we got a we took a two we paid a two for him. didn't work out so it's time to move on we'll cough up the four and be done with it
0: we did not get to Shrine Prospects. We'll have to do that tomorrow. <laughs> no, we got, we got, let's, let's do Turbo Realm. Okay. This is on you. Tell us everything we, you want to tell us about Shrine Prospects in as much time as you have left.
1: Okay. So the best players here, in my opinion, are on the defensive side of the football. I'm impressed with Ben, Ben Solak's been preaching about this dude to me all week. And he's right. Khalil Davis, defensive tackle from Nebraska. He's dense. He's fairly mobile in his lower half and he's really able to to contort his frame to to leverage and and drive blockers in the direction that he wants to go while using a dynamic lower half. So he's not just a straight line athlete. So Davis has been really, really impressive. It seems like every year at the Shrine Game, there's like an interior defensive lineman, right? Yeah. A actually. guy that that just kind of pops at you. And this year's is definitely Khalil Davis. Uh Michael Owenu, uh Guard from Michigan. Have you seen this guy's measurements? No. He he checked in at 6'2 and a half, 362 pounds, Whoa. and th- and 34 and a half inch arms at guard. Okay. Ben is wrote him up yesterday and saw exactly what I saw because I watched him very closely on Monday. I'm like, you've got my attention, big fella. Joe, he has the best feet here. At 362, and he's been anywhere from 370 to 3... So, so there's going to be like weight questions with him and, and weight management questions with him, but he is an incredibly gifted player just watching his footwork, his foot, foot speed, uh, his control. You could tell he's been well-coached at Michigan. I'm really impressed with Michael and Wayne you, and at some point this week when I'm done writing up all the LSU kids that I've been putting off because they still hadn't played the national championship... I want to turn on the L twenty two on this kid and see what he's got.
0: Him and Caesar, because he mean, is, huh?
1: yeah, both those guys. I've already done Ben Bredesen, and you know he flashed, but like I'm not noting him because I'm really trying to watch and and focus on the technique of Bredesen. So, Onwayu is another big winner as as a trench guy. Uh, some of the guys in the the secondary that are popping to me. Uh, Chris Williamson is a corner from Minnesota who transferred from Florida and he doesn't have great ball production, but you watch him here and he's really well built. He's physical. He had one rep on Monday's practice where he's playing press and it's at the end of practice, right? Where it's like the offense and the defense are all gathered together and they run one offensive guy and one defensive guy out on the field and they do a one-on-one and, Everybody's watching you, not just like all the scouts and and coaches and stuff, but all your teammates are watching it too. And it's offense versus defense. And Williamson's in press coverage with outside leverage, and the receiver takes an inside stem at the line of scrimmage, presses vertically up the field. He's running a skinny post. And Williamson transitions from outside leverage and press coverage to when he flips his hips vertical to carry the route he works himself back into inside leverage because the, the receiver started to lean like he was going to work inside. And he worked underneath and he flipped his eyes back and converted to the receiver and ran down an interception, which is a really impressive play because it's one-on-ones. Like you got no safety help. You're out there on an island. It's really tough in that situation to cover the full field. And he converted to, from outside leverage to inside leverage with his vertical flip. And I was really impressed with that. Uh, Benjamin Victor the wide receiver from Ohio State is another name that's been popping to me uh, really crisp with his routes as you would expect any Brian Hartline coach wide receiver to be coming out of Ohio State uh, he's not a dense frame he's pretty long and lean uh, but he has been tearing dudes up putting him in the spin cycle so really liked what I've seen from him over the course of two days of practice looking forward to seeing him again uh, today I would leave you with one more name before we wrap up, Joe. Ready? Yes. He is an offensive tackle from Buffalo. And he's got my attention. I actually still, he's going to have to forgive me. I'm still not versed on his name yet. But (laughs) he looks pretty impressive. He looks like, what you would expect an NFL offensive tackle to look like. Uh, He's athletic build. He's almost more of like the tight end build. Uh, His name is Evan Kajarchik, I believe. It's probably not at all how you pronounce the last name, but he's from Buffalo. He's 6'6", 315, and he's the most natural mover of the offensive tackles. So uh, I know they've got Bowden from Ohio State out here. And he looks really great until you put him in contact and he kind of gets yeah. washed around. They got John Runyon Jr. from Michigan and he looks good. And Jack Driscoll, uh, a little leaner than I expected Jack Driscoll to be uh, right around 300 pounds for him. So Kajarsic, the the Buffalo kid is the most pleasant blend of like density, mobility, footwork. He's He's obviously coming from Buffalo. He's not quite as technically polished as some of these other guys, but he's really standing out to me in a positive way. So that's kind of your crash course on some of the big he can redeem
0: the UB guys from last year.
1: (laughs) Yeah, UB was a rough watch at the Shrine last year. I think they got got a better cue coming up this time around. But that's going to do it for us today on the show. Uh, We will be back again tomorrow. I'm going to have more updates from Shrine. Joe, we won't have three things to make up for – me missing two days on the pod this week. So I think we should be able to dig into the Shrine a little bit more intimately uh, as we get three days of practice in. Today's practices start starting about 45 minutes. So Ben and I got to go run and get breakfast and meet up with Trevor at the stadium. So that's what I'm doing. Make sure you keep an eye out on Draft Network LLC on Twitter for all of the updates uh, from Shrine. We're getting some video clips. We're getting some analysis. We're doing written analysis for, for otherdraftnetwork.com as well. Thanks as always for listening to Draft Dudes, and we will talk with you guys again tomorrow.